Hey, listeners. Uh, before today's episode starts, I wanted to address the elephant in the room. In the last few weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine, I've been getting messages from listeners who want me to cover the war, to comment on it, to provide some analysis, to even provide my own personal opinion. But I've been very reluctant to state where the SRB podcast fits in all this. Like many of my friends and colleagues, this war has impacted me personally. And the climate is so polarized that it's really hard to speak about this war at all. So many people have been affected in so many terrible ways. Now, as you know, this podcast mostly focuses on Russia. And the main reason I haven't directly engaged the war is that my capacity to chase headlines is limited. There's also many excellent experts and journalists already doing this work, and I don't think there's much the SRB podcast can do to adequately chronicle our collective presence. And I certainly don't want to engage in speculation, half-baked ideas, or even half-baked measures. At the same time, I understand that silence isn't an option, and that this war will impact everything in the region moving forward. It will also define how we interpret the past. It's really impossible to ignore that we're living through some kind of paradigm shift. But where we're shifting to is in becoming, with many twists, turns, and zigzags ahead. The SRB podcast's mission has always been to provide accessible knowledge about Russia and the wider region, to give a complex picture of its history, politics, and culture. This mission is more important now than ever. The SRB podcast isn't going to report on the war, but future episodes may grapple with how we got here. We will continue to fill this mission as best we can, and I hope you listeners will find some value in what we do. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novakova and Margaret Budik. As you well know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And listeners like you who are generous to give monthly contributions from anywhere between five bucks, even a dollar, some people do, to $25. I don't have any other monthly contributors more than 25. And so if you'd like this podcast and like to support us, please take a moment to go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and click on that Patreon link and uh, give us some money so Margaret and Rusana can get more money and be paid properly, somewhat properly, whatever. Well, <laughs> something. <laughs> um, so this, I should say the listeners, this week's podcast is uh, the second event in Reese's uh, spring series, Openness, Acceleration, Restructuring the Soviet 1980s. So this is an interview I uh, recorded as part of a, of a live event with Courtney Doucette. Um, so why don't you go ahead, Margaret, and introduce Courtney. Courtney Doucette is Assistant Professor of History at the State University of New York at Oswego, where she teaches courses in modern Russian, European, and gender history. 
Her book in progress, Piristroika, The Last Attempt to Make the New Soviet Person, 1985 to 1991, examines how Gorbachev-era reform emerged from the long-standing Soviet effort to transform citizens into upstanding participants in the creation of socialism. Here's Courtney Doucette. Your research looks at perestroika and the role of letter writing in this reform, which, you know, of course, I had no clue about, um, which is why I do these interviews most of the time. Uh, can you please talk about your research and, and how did you get interested in this topic? Yeah. So in terms of the research, the parameters of my project are this. Um, the book sets out to give a, a history of late Soviet reform. And the tendency in scholarship is to start with the collapse, right? And it's usually called the collapse very dramatically. And then to look backwards and, and offer up explanations of why the Soviet Union ended in that way in December, 1991. And um, when I uh, approached this project, I thought what was missing was a, a sort of historical perspective on this, because of course, during the Soviet period, nobody expected the collapse. Even in early 1991, when they held the referendum on holding the Soviet Union together, most people who participated at least did not anticipate a Soviet collapse or, or desire that. So um, the, the goal of my project is to reconstruct the imaginary horizons of those who led the reform initiative and those who experienced it and participated it at all levels of society and politics. And um, when we look at perestroika from the beginning to the end, rather from the end backwards, what we see is that the concepts and the practices that guided reform had deep roots in the Soviet period. Um, as the, the title of my project suggests, one of those main concepts was the concept of the new Soviet person, but also letter writing is a perfect example of a, a deep-seated Soviet practice that shaped late Soviet reform. In other words, what the project tries to suggest is that um, the, the 1985 quandary that's usually there in, in history, histories of the Soviet Union wasn't as big as we might think. In fact, everything building up to 1985 came to bear on the way that reformers thought about changing the Soviet Union, what they even thought needed to be changed. So in terms of how I came to this project, it's, it's really a, a grad school story, Sean. So I... I went into grad school at Rutgers hoping to work on the 1920s and the artistic avant-garde. And I, I did a, a, a research project, a seminar project on, on um, uh, avant-garde artists. And I did another project on nonconformist artists because Rutgers is of course um, home to one of the world's largest collections of Soviet dissident art. And um, so I worked in that collection a great deal and studied the, the collector of that artwork. Um, but I was really drawn just as, a, as an intellectual project to the 1980s because, um, well, for a number of reasons. One, when you're studying the 1920s and you're a crowded in a crowded room of brilliant people, it's hard to say anything new at the table, right? Um, whereas, whereas with the 1980s, um, there are very smart people at the table, but there are only like five of them. 
And so it's easier to get a word in and to uh, say something that, that matters, which is another way of saying that this, the 80s um, seemed like a relatively neglected period in Soviet history, in, in part because of this assumption that after 85, something's different. Almost as if after 85, this isn't really Soviet history anymore. And so it, it's sort of a time set apart from the rest of Soviet historiography. And that was interesting to me. This project of reconstructing um, a period that's so recent in, in time, you know, pe people still remember this period. Um, many of the people who read my work are, are those who actually lived through it and experienced it. So this is a period that's on the edge of memory and historical archives. And um, I find it intellectually a very uh, uh, fascinating project. So that's how I ended up going from the 20s to the 80s. Well, I, I really like this idea of the uh, imaginary horizons because as you said, there is in, in working backwards from the disillusion backwards, we also inevitably end up with a very teleological explanation. And what the idea of the imaginary horizons opens is a bunch of potentials. So what what kind of potentials were there at, at this time that came that allowed that led you to come up with this concept or use this concept? The starting point for this. I think was actually uh, reading um, a book really outside of our field, uh, as, as we do in grad school, right? We're just constantly reading. And one of the things that I read from my comprehensive exams was Tony Jutt's post-war, um, which is, which, um, you know, makes the argument that there, that post-war development um, in Europe, but he really means West Europe, Western Europe in particular, um, the Cold War West was a moral project. And he um, hitches this to the history of the welfare state and traces that from 1945 to about the year 2000. And um, it's very interesting in this work how Russia figures, how the Soviet Union figures in the, the history. For him, the Soviet Union is just this antagonistic force on the edge of Europe. Um, and, and uh, we, we don't stop hearing this really, right? And so, um, so this is how he depicts uh, the Soviet Union. But of course, if you read documents from the Soviet Union, um, morality is laced throughout all of them. There's a rich discussion of morality throughout the post-war period, including in the Gorbachev era. And so as I read post-war, I thought, but the Soviet Union isn't just this anti-moral, project, right? It's, they have a different morality project going on. And you see that even in Perestroika. And so to, to sort of, uh, the, the quest became to understand why on nearly every document, every page of every speech and every newspaper from the 1980s, there is all this rich moral language. And, and what is that about? And, and so that was sort of my point of entry into the imaginary horizons of the architects of perestroika. And uh, my conclusion is that what that language is about is an, is an attempt to revive the, the, um, the new man project and the attempt to finally get it right, to finally create this new Soviet person who would be economically productive, who would be politically committed, um, ideologically upstanding, 
uh, and and the essential component of making socialism finally work. You know, it's it's really it's really interesting. I mean, because this is this is why you write that you know Gorbachev and other Soviet reformers saw perestroika as an antidote to a moral crisis. Now, it's it's fascinating that that this is language is throughout. But if you think about it, it makes sense because, as you know, this language has been out through through the entire Soviet period, but. Most of our kind of general understanding of the 80s is that this ideological stuff doesn't mean anything anymore, right? This idea of like the the idea of the creating the Soviet person died sometime in the 60s. Oh, absolutely. Right. The way that John Bushnell put it in 1979 was that the new Soviet man had become pessimist. Or cynic. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and then a more recent formulation of this, I think, is um anthropologist Alexei Yurchak's uh, idea of performativity, the idea that ideology became increasingly performative, which is how he explains why when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, everybody understood and yet few were expecting it. And I, I would I would push back that on that idea that sort of people accepted the Soviet collapse. I think it was actually a very dramatic and traumatic uh, moment for, for people living Within the fifteen Soviet republics, um, but the the thing is, here's the thing: Gorbachev was sort of on the same page as Bushnell and Yurchak. What Yurchak calls performativity, Gorbachev called stagnation, and Perestroika became an effort to undo that trend and to correct the pessimism that Soviet citizens had taken on. And that's that's why um, I see. Perestroika fundamentally as a, a moral project. It was that attempt to undo those trends, which certainly existed. In, in some sense, I think that both your Jack and Bushnell are absolutely correct. But then the question is what happened next? And in 1985, there was an effort to undo the, the problems that had developed in Soviet society. Well, let's talk about some of the, your sources because you focus a lot on letters. And I mean, they're great. They're like such wonderful sources. Every time in, when I was working in archives, you come across a letter, you're just like, ah, oh, this is the best. Um, and, and letters, as we know, you know, Sheila Fitzpatrick famously is one of the people who started looking at all of these letters uh, in the 1930s. And, and I remember reading about this and just being surprised, like people actually wrote Soviet authorities asking for stuff, right? <laughs> so, you know, what, talk about this, this fascinating uh, phenomenon of letter writing in this in the Soviet in Soviet society, and its its importance as both an expression of, you know, the voice of the people, but also as a historical source. First, let me say that Soviet people wrote about everything, and I'm sure you've experienced this too in the letters that you found. Right? Some people write about needing a cow or eggs. They write about the price of noodles. They write about you know, the hospital bed that a family member has or hasn't been able to receive, the medical treatment, they write about their jobs, they write about colleagues, they write about party documents that they read in the newspaper. So the, so letters um, cover almost, you know, any imaginable topic. What weren't Soviet people writing about in letters? And I actually, I met with a one of the women who worked in the letter department at Komsomolskaya Pravda, who assured me that they never made up any letters that they published because they didn't have to. They, they had so many to choose from. And I agree with the second part of what she said, though I, I still have my, my uh, suspicions that 
if need be, a letter could be made up. But in part because people did really write about everything and, and it, it wouldn't be, I mean, you know, just in theory, it wouldn't be hard to, to sort of craft a letter that could have been written. Um, but the, when, we, um, when we think about letter writing um, and the, the thousands of letters that poured into all sorts of Soviet institutions in the um, 1980s and really throughout the entire Soviet period, I think it's important to think about a number of different players in this phenomenon. So of course there are the letter writers themselves penning um, plentiful, long, um, detailed letters about their lives and their grievances, their successes, um, and so on. But there are so many other people involved in this phenomenon. Number one, the state. And from the very beginning of the uh, Soviet project, state leaders um, thought letters were essential. They were an essential form of communication between citizens and the state. They were an essential um, way in which citizens could participate in politics. That um, was a central way of um, you know, getting information about what was going on in the country. And, and there is also, of course, the surveillance um, aspect to letter writing throughout the Soviet period. Um, but because of the, the meaning that uh, state leaders invested in letter writing, they also created um, thousands of institutions that were meant to process letters from citizens. So in addition to having millions of people actually writing these letters, you had tens of thousands of people working in the Soviet Union to facilitate the um, the, the reading of letters, the uh, processing of mail, the sending it to where it needed to go to uh, making sure that each letter, um, which by law, each letter had, each public letter had to receive a, a formal response, whether it was from the newspaper or from the institution it was sent to. Sometimes this law uh, was aspirational, but it was on the books. It mattered, right? And you needed a huge staff in order to, to do that. And so the, um, so letter writing uh, was really far more than just the, the letters themselves, far more than the letter writers. It was uh, part of the, um, the state, um, part of the state itself. And, um, and it became, uh, I would say the, the life bread, the, the, sorry, the lifeblood of Soviet socialist democracy. When people wrote these letters, they, they wrote them um, with the expectation that they were participating in politics to some extent, or, or that they could intervene in questions that were fundamentally political in nature. And, and we have to keep in mind, of course, that the questions that were political in the Soviet Union were probably far broader than, say, in the U.S. at this time. I mean, after all, the state was responsible for your medical care, for your housing, um, for the price of food, right? So there were so many more everyday questions that were um, fundamentally political in nature. Um, you see this in the, um, if I if I may, you see this in the in the 1920s, but it's also from what I understand also in the late Soviet period, the important role these letters played for journalists. Because while, you know, they didn't make up letters, they would take a couple of them if say they were about a certain issue, a local issue and write it uh, like a feloton about it or do it in like an article, news journalistic article. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship between it and the press and so many of these letters are going to newspapers? 
Yeah, newspapers were um, probably the most important recipient of public letters um, in the Soviet Union, especially during Perestroika. And the, um, the, they were important for a number of reasons, which the title of this episode in your series, um, I think is actually really instructive in pointing out that letter in particular from Andreeva. But um, so newspapers, um, first of all, like any state institution were required to respond to every single piece of mail received. But of course, as a newspaper, they did far more than that. Um, one, they sent reports on their letters to the government on a, a weekly and monthly basis. Um, two, they were expected to resolve the issues, some of the issues and the, the letters that they received. Um, three, they, um, they selectively not just replied to letters, but would actually go and visit the letter writers and investigate the, the situations that were mentioned in the letters. And then also they would publish letters, right? So then it, um, then we have to sort of shift gears here. So it goes then from, you know, somebody who's written a letter to the press to then something that people across the country can actually read in print, um, which has a sort of instructional um, potential showing people how to actually write letters, how to engage in public discourse. But um, it also has a way of showing the state and the newspaper's interaction with citizens. Um, so it's it's very multidimensional. And, um, and when the, the newspapers worked with the letters, they were participating in all of these things. Hello. Are you a lazy free rider like me? Have you been listening to and learning from the SRB podcast like I have for years without helping to support it in the slightest? My name's Jeff Broxmeyer. I'm an associate professor of political science at the University of Toledo. I have this insane hour and a half commute between Toledo and Detroit. And as I drive by auto factories and nuclear power plants to get home after work, one of the few things that makes this commute bearable for me is to listen to the latest episode of the SRB podcast. Yes, so I've been a free rider. But today I'm here to say that I've joined the table of ranks to support the podcast financially. And you should too. Support the institutions that you love. Go to the website at srbpodcast.org, click that Patreon button, and make a contribution. Um, let's let's talk about. You just mentioned this really important letter by Nina Andreevna. Um, I, I cannot forsake my uh, principles, which was uh, printed in. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It was printed in the newspaper Soviet Russia in March 1988, and then it was subsequently republished throughout the Soviet Union, and it sparked an intense debate. So my first question is about it is, who is this Nina Andreevna? Oh, well, I really like that question, I have to say, because I think not enough attention has been given to who she is. So in the... Um, First lines of her letter, she introduces herself as a chemistry professor at Leningrad Polytechnic Institute. And um, to be honest, nearly every single work on scholarly work on perestroika mentions this letter in some capacity. And yet we don't learn anything more about Nina Andreeva 
than that one line of information presented in the uh, letter itself. And aside from the views that she expresses in the letter. But who she is is actually really fascinating. So Andreeva was born in 1938. She was just a couple of years younger than Gorbachev. And she um, came into her conscious, memorable life during World War II. Um, she and her family lived in Leningrad. She and her mother survived the blockade. And all of her sisters and brothers and father were sent to the front lines and all of them were killed in battle. And so she had a really rough childhood, right? She lost very, uh, almost all of her family at a very young age. Um, her, she and her mother were impoverished, living in the blockaded city. And um, when she came of age in the 1950s during the thaw, we have to remember that Andreeva is actually of the thaw generation. She, um, she says uh, in, in many interviews that she gave with journalists after writing this letter that became famous that um, she, she was smart and she could have studied anything but she picked chemistry. And I think this is really fascinating in part because it's part of the bigger history of Soviet science. Um, it's, it's part of the state's um, fostering of science in the Soviet Union and especially fostering um, women's education in science. And chemistry, I should say, was a gendered science, right? This wasn't physics. Um, it was chemistry. And she decided to go into chemistry in part because of the stipend that she could get in the 50s, which as a child of the war, you can understand that that economic incentive would have been very meaningful. But so even though she's of the Thaw generation, she uh, really twists our expectations of the people, the intellectuals in particular that came out of that um, period. So um, she was not um, one of the uh, sort of late Soviet more liberal-minded people that we associate with the Thaw. Um, instead, she was a Stalinist. And she was more like, you know, members of, say, the MGO history department than the members of the Moscow um, Writers' Union. And um, so she, she, she eventually, you know, got her PhD and she went on to pursue jobs in chemistry. Her first, and her work history is also fascinating because she is constantly getting in arguments with people. And, and this is relevant to the 1988 letter because, you know, she was a fiery personality. She liked fighting with people as this letter uh, suggests, but she, she was constantly fighting with people in the workplace and they were constantly trying to rescind her party card. Um, they never managed to do so. It was always restored. Um, but what's interesting is that, you know, the questions that come up there, was she somebody who um, was uh, just a difficult colleague? Um, was she, you know, out of line with party expectations at, at, in like the 60s and the 70s? But I think we have to recognize our, our, um, the sort of misogynist assumptions that go along with those readings of the situation, because um, she was also a woman in the workplace, right? And a woman in the party. And she, she joined the party and she really made a stand for herself precisely at the time that um, the party leaders were trying to get more women into the party. So- um, when, when did she die? Yeah. So she actually died um, in 
uh, to uh, 2020. Did you, did you ever get a chance to meet her? Uh, funny you should ask. So the last time I was in Russia um, was in 2014 and I, 2014-2015. And I um, received her phone number from a colleague and decided yeah, of course I should call her. And so I called her and I asked her if she would meet with me. And the first time I called after I explained who I was, she hung up on me. And so I called back and she hung up on me again. And then I was, I, I, I was very determined. I called her again and she's, she, um, so this conversation was in September, 2014, just on the heels of Russia's annexation of Crimea. And she said, okay, you're an American. I will speak to you, but we can only talk about Ukraine. Oh, shit. <laughs> God. You're like, that's like the last thing I want to talk about. <laughs> so I, um, it was actually the last thing I wanted to talk about in Russia at that moment. And so I said no, and I think I hung up the phone. <laughs> but no, so we didn't get a chance to nah. meet, but I did have those those brief conversations with her on the phone. Right. and. It, it's my understanding. I see this every once in a while that that there's a belief that she didn't write that letter, right? That it was right. it was forged or somebody else wrote it, right? So, so this is one reason why I think it's so important to spotlight her biography. I mean, her biography is, I think, interesting in and of itself, but also the reason that we only learn where she taught in the 1980s through the scholarship that that mentions her is in part because there's so much doubt about whether or not she actually wrote the letter. And here's something really fascinating. The year before this letter, this very famous letter came out, or this letter that became very famous, Andreeva had written two letters to um, a minor Leningrad weekly newspaper. And the first letter actually got published. And that letter reads very much like this very famous letter. But that one never became famous. And in that letter, she expresses the same Stalinist views, the same criticism of perestroika, the same criticism of the economic uh, reforms, the same criticisms of sort of where the center of gravity in public discourse had fallen. And so she expresses all the same opinions, but that letter didn't become um, so famous. So, so, so why, this, why this letter in March 88? Why, why did that one take off in the way that it did. Right. I think this is really connected to those earlier letters that she wrote. And I, I, my conclusion is that it's not the message that made her letter important. It was really the way that the media handled it. And the fact that it was, first of all, given very prominent publication, not in a minor Leningrad weekly, but in a, in a national um, Soviet daily, and it covered, it was big. This, this letter covered the entirety of the third page of the newspaper. The third, and the third page was still an important page, right? And um, the, the letter is, um, is extremely long. It's like over 15 single space typed pages. And, and that was after she reduced the size by about half. So, so it was given a very prominent publication. And then um, we have to think about how exactly the Soviet press was working at this time. So of course, during Perestroika, the Soviet press um, underwent uh, pretty significant changes. And, um, and, and um, so many changes, in fact, that when we think about Perestroika era press, we tend to think it, it Again, it wasn't really the Soviet era, right? 
But something to keep in mind is that the new press law um, didn't come into being until 1990. And so actually at this period, in, in terms of the laws, in terms of institutions, the press was functioning the same way as it had been, say, in 1980. What had changed were circulation rates, right, or, or circulation numbers. So, so party officials allowed uh, journals increasingly to set, or publications increasingly to set their own um, uh, circulation rates, but, um, but that, and then the content started to change, but, but legally the press was really working the same way. So Andreeva's letter comes out on the full, full page of this newspaper. And then it's unclear exactly why. It might've just been the traditions governing the Soviet press, but that letter was then reprinted across the country in over 930 uh, newspapers. And um, then there were televised uh, conferences about the letter in Leningrad. And it, it was through this um, mediation of the letter that it became so famous. What, what was so explosive in it? Like the inter talk a bit more about the content. Because we all know that it was some sort of Stalinist rejection of perestroika and the reforms, but you know, it, it clearly the content clearly stuck, struck a chord in in many respects. Right. So um, the letter is framed first of all um, with Andreeva's work with students, which is to say her work with the next generation, which is also to say her moral concerns about society and and morality is central here too. Right. Even in the title of this letter. And um, she goes on to, to, to talk about nearly every aspect of perestroika, the economic reforms, about um, new plays that had uh, been performed in Moscow, about, um, about the influence of the West on the Soviet Union at this time. And, um, and in this, there's sort of a, a, a latent defense of Stalinism, of his achievements, um, of collectivization, of the victory in World War II, and of course the war is also central here. Um, so that's uh, that's what the content was. But but again, it of course the content struck a chord, right? Uh, struck a nerve. But um, this but this content was available everywhere at this time. You know, Andreeva herself had published it the previous year. Um, there were many. Stalinists still in the Soviet Union. They hadn't just disappeared come 1985 with Gorbachev's ascent to power, right? So, um, so it, it, a lot of what people were responding to was not simply the content, but that this particular content had been given such, um, such a spotlight. And, and it made people wonder, you know, is this, um, is this a change in the reform period? Like, is is this a, a sign that um, reforms are going to take a left turn here, or maybe <laughs> more appropriately, a very hard right turn? You know, they didn't. Um, there was some confusion about that. Oh, so it was seen as a possible signal, as a as a turn away. So, what, how do you how do you understand? Like, how does this letter fit within your understanding of perestroika? or this moment itself? So the letter, its content, who Andreeva is, gives us an opportunity to, number one, sort of reassess 
who are the participants in perestroika here, right? The spotlight um, is usually on the more reform-minded people, um, on the hopes for, for change, rather than these more conservative thinkers like Andreeva. And, and that's, I think, another reason why she, her, she as a person is written out of this story, because she's a very inconvenient thinker to, to wrap into the bigger narrative of, of late Soviet reform. And um, so, so I think it gives us, um, if, if we look specifically at Andreeva, it gives us a different sense of the cast of characters of the movers and shakers of Perestroika. But also what I think is really important about this letter is the response. So um, some scholars have said that, you know, this was such a signal to the Soviet public that um, people froze in silence. They couldn't say anything because they were worried about what was coming next. But this is where the archive is very revealing and, and where I'm so grateful that so many um, 1980s archives are finally uh, accessible to um, historians. The archive suggests that people started shooting off letters immediately in response to Andreeva's uh, letter. And they, what this whole situation reveals, you know, Andreeva's publication, but then that taken in conjunction with the thousands and thousands of letters that were sent right in the wake of the publication of her work. Um, what it suggests is just how robust uh, public discourse in the Soviet Union was. And um, the uh, people who responded to her letter um, in many instances felt that they had an opportunity to intervene in what could have been a hard right turn in reform politics, right? And they thought they could express their opinion and that it mattered. And they also hoped to get their words printed on the pages of newspapers and, and to in that way further influence the outcome of um, the discussion. So, so we see in this, uh, in short, just how central popular participation was to the course of reform. Of all the letters you looked at, do you have a favorite one? One that kind of, you you know, when you tell your story of uh, your research to people who aren't in this business, do you do you always bring up a particular letter that struck you? Well, there is one that I, I do um, have a particular affinity for. And uh, I will say it's not the Andreeva letter, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> I was hoping it wasn't. <laughs> no, it's, it's such a fascinating letter. And what's interesting about it is, you know, it's often used to teach the the Soviet 80s, right, to teach perestroika. Her letter appears in a lot of source books. And I think it's really difficult to teach in a 50-minute undergraduate class, to be honest, especially when you have to cover the whole period of perestroika. But here's the letter I love. Um, the letter uh, came from a Ukrainian man named uh, by the last name of Piskunov. And he sent this letter to Komsomolskaya Pravda in um, early November 1990. But what he sent wasn't a conventional letter. He did have sort of a cover letter that he sent to the newspaper, but he also sent what was called a kitchen diary. And he kept this kitchen diary in response to a call from the newspaper in September, 1990. So this was just at the start of the 500 days program. Um, and what uh, the newspaper um, asked of its readers 
was that they start to keep something called a kitchen diary that when they go to the stores, when they go to the market, when they go out, that they just keep notes on what's available in their region, what they can buy, what they can't buy, other economic issues that they confront, and they record this in a kitchen diary, and then they send their kitchen diaries to the newspaper um, so that the newspaper can assess the situation. And so Piskunov did just that, and every almost every day in October 1990, he wrote down um, the size of potatoes that he could buy, the fact that if you paid 20 kopecks more for a bag of, for a kilo of potatoes, that you didn't have to wait in line. But if you paid 20 kopecks less, you did. That one day he he paid with um, three rubles, and the shortage at the store that day was in change itself. Um, and so he couldn't get the change. And he so he wrote about all this and what I really love about this letter is, <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to know about potatoes in Ukraine in 1990, right? But, um, but more than that, I, I love what this illuminates in terms of the dialogue between the state, newspapers, and citizens. And I think this is a perfect example of how um, even letters of complaint, letters about shortage, right? We, um, we tend to assume that these were somehow um, uh, sort of a strike at the very foundation of the Soviet project. But in fact, what I think we see through Piskunov's kitchen diary, for example, is that complaining could be part of the system itself. It could be, um, it could be a way of life. It could be a way of participation, meaningful participation in events rather than simply uh, a rejection of, of politics or the politics that were unfolding. Your examination of perestroika is you know, from below, right? From the ground up, through these letters, through people's voices, and the participation that it suggests. What are some conclusions do you have about the how perestroika was experienced? Because like you said, you know, we, we have a lot about like reformers, but we don't really have a sense of like, well, what did regular people think of this sea change of thing, rapid change that's going around, you know, in their daily lives? In terms of the experience, um, my reading of this late Soviet period is that by and large, Soviet people were deeply engaged in the politics of still trying to make socialism a reality. And that, yes, events on the ground were rapidly developing, um, but it was through the very practices of things like letter writing um, that people kept tabs on what was changing and processed it and adjusted at breakneck speed. Um, it's really quite impressive, actually, um, how people uh, adjusted to the, the pace of, of change. Um, but aside from that, um, or in addition to that, in addition to that kind of experience of late Soviet reform, what I think is really too uh, important to remember when we think about perestroika from below is um, to check our assumptions about what Soviet people were, um, what they understood as politics and um, what they, what relationship they had to the, both the, you know, the ideology and the politics of reform. And um, 
it's one of the reasons why I think 1985 and after remains a time set apart from the rest of Soviet history is because our assumptions of the um, presence of the liberal subject there haven't been challenged all that much. And in, in part of the narrative we get of the collapse, right, is that, um, is that this was fundamentally a project that most people didn't want anymore. And so people, if they were active at all in Perestroika, were somehow part of the attempt to dismantle the Soviet Union. And um, I think that's a very liberal assumption about what people wanted at this point in time. And I don't think it's really all that accurate. There weren't all that many people who met in the uh, forest in Belarus on that fateful day when the Soviet Union was dissolved, right? And so um, I, think, I think those assumptions about what, you know, what political positions Soviet people had and what they even considered politics. Um, it, those are things we need to check more often. And I just want to underscore that with letter writing, this um, to, as far as I understand it, when when um, people like Andreeva and then her um, her epistolary interlocutors, um, uh, when they responded, I, they they saw what they did as an act of politics. For them, this was, it wasn't just letter writing. It wasn't just complaining. It was participating in the politics that would shape the future of their homeland. Let's talk about the politics of how we even talk about the end. You know, you just you just kind of referenced this and I like to go a bit deeper. And plus we, we kind of mentioned at the very beginning in the introduction, you know, it's collapse is the, you know, most, prevalent word. In fact, it's the title of Vladislav Zubok's new book. Um, I've heard disillusioned, as you said. I've heard the end. I've heard coup. I've heard dismantle. Um, what do you think of this? What is this effort to try to name what happened? The debate over, I mean, there's not much of a debate, but there is different ways to name this. What does this say about how we understand what went on in this period you're talking about? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think to, to push against the over-dramatization of the end and that as our point of reference for narrating the history of this period, um, to get away from 1991 as the, the reason for telling the story, right? Though, of course, it's very significant. We can't get away from that, but... But the thing is, when we study 1985, I don't think we can study it just because we're interested in 1991. And in fact, when we study 1956, we can't study that just because we're interested in 1991. And this is what this tele teleological view of Soviet history is what so often happens, right? So, so I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that uh, ultimately the, the choice to call it dissolution or collapse or um, the end, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a decision about how we wanna tell the story as historians and what we wanna emphasize and what we wanna dramatize. And I mean, I mean, come on, let's face it. Even I can agree with you that collapse is a way better title than dissolution. <laughs> well, yes, it definitely, it definitely is far more marketable. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. 
Um, you know, here's here's another question along those lines. I mean, I don't know if you've thought of this at all, but you know, there's another trend in um, the, particularly the works of the so the post war period is also to mark the beginning of the end, and where you mark the beginning of the end is also telling, right? Because you're you're expecting the Soviet Union to be something, and then at some point that something no longer exists or fades away or whatever. Uh, what what do you I just like your thoughts on this this tendency to like mark the beginning of the end. And I would imagine where you put it is actually really short, right? You know, like really butting up against the end. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you're right about that. And um I mean, I don't I, I I guess generally I would argue against doing that, trying to find the beginning of the end. Um, but if we're going to establish a beginning of the end, then I think we have to um, at least be generous and talk about many beginnings of the end. Because I, uh, my bigger point is that, you know, sort of the, um, the teleological interpretations of Soviet history that travel along a relatively straight line, you know, whether it's slowly downwards into a collapse or, you know, something building upwards into this <clears throat> dramatic moment. Um, I, I think they miss a lot of the details of what's going on. Going back to the start of our conversation, you know, the very fact that uh, there could have been at the start of the 80s, a general sense that things weren't going well. But then in 85, it changed, right? Because reformers tried to address those problems. So so history moves and fits and starts. History doesn't travel along straight lines. Um, we might find a sort of beginning, but then things loop back because historical actors do things and they, they address the problems that, that arise. So, so if there is a beginning to the end, I think there are many beginnings and then, and then also sort of many attempts to, uh, to avert an end. And finally, um... What are some of the legacies of this letter writing after this participatory, you know, mode of communication after the collapse? So to understand this, we really have to think about how quickly the media world changed in the 1990s um, and beyond. So, and there are a number of things going on here, right? There's the press law of 1990, which fundamentally changes the way that the Soviet press worked. Then there is the um, dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. And in, in the 90s, uh, the Russian press, for example, became something almost unrecognizable um, side by side with the, with the Soviet version of itself. And um, so the media world changed a lot, but also at the same time, technology changed a lot. And so the there's definitely um, a robust practice of still engaging the content of newspapers, for example, but that engagement takes a different shape. You're not necessarily sending your letter, your handwritten letter to, um, to a letter department at a newspaper, but you're posting your comments online. So, so in, in some ways, uh, because of technology, because of the changing media landscape, um, the letter writing phenomenon as it existed during perestroika is a historical phenomenon. Um, but uh, that said, I think there are still important broader conclusions um, that we can take away from looking at this historical phenomenon that characterized 
perestroika. And, and that really has to do with um, our expectations about how people are participating in politics, what they actually wanted. And I can't emphasize enough, especially um, at a time like this, that we have to keep our ear very close to the ground to understand you know, a, a popular relationship to any political event. And we, we can't just assume that it's you know, all one thing or all the other, that you know, people aren't saying anything. What happened to her? What happened to Nina Andreevna after all of this calmed down? Do you have any sense of how her life went after nineteen, even nineteen ninety one, for that matter? Well, even in nineteen eighty eight, the outcome was pretty tragic. So she um, she really uh, received the harshest punishment for the publication of this letter. She lost her job. Her husband lost his job. They, since they were fired, um, they weren't eligible for pensions. And so they were sort of banished to penury even before the Soviet Union and the past. That's, yeah, that's a really great question. I, I don't actually know the details of that. Um, I mean, Andreeva's telling of the story is that they fired her for ideological reasons. But right, yeah, it, it would actually be interesting to know, right? What did the conversations in that room look like when <laughs> she was told she no longer had a job? Um, and then her husband too, for that matter. So, um, but she, she still, um, she did pretty well for herself, uh, not economically speaking, but she, um, a couple of years later, she founded a political party and she headed up that political party until the day she died. Um, yeah, and so she became a, a you know, a, still she remained a voice in in uh, uh, in public. She remained a public figure throughout the late Soviet period and then the 1990s. That was Courtney Doucette. Courtney Doucette is assistant professor of history at the State University of New York at Oswego, where she teaches courses in modern Russian, European, and gender history. Her book in progress, Piritroika, The Last Attempt to Make the New Soviet Person, 1985 to 1991, examines how Gorbachev-era reform emerged from the long-standing Soviet effort to transform citizens into upstanding participants in the creation of socialism. So we just heard this interview with Courtney Doucette on letter writing, and I'm curious, uh, what are some of your thoughts and takeaways from the interview? Who wants to start? Um, one of the points that made an impression on me was her comparison of the American morality project and the Soviet morality project. In the Soviet Union, they were undergoing this like creative and highly intensive mission to create this new man who's economically productive, politically committed, and ideologically understanding, to quote Doucette, because that's what the Soviet system needed in order to be successful. To make it work, we needed to get rid of the toxic traits, so to speak, and reimagine what we think man, mankind, is fundamentally capable of. So that was, I don't know, I was, I was really thinking about that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway, well, the project goes on. People get more pessimistic. Pirostroika was supposed to be the response to this pessimism, where the new man was supposed to be given like agency and he actively participated in the system and letter writing was kind of the exemplification of that. I don't know if I want to say it, it exemplifies faith in the system, but it's a 
it is a positive action. It's like voting. So when you do something positively, it proves that you think it's worth it on some level or else like, why would you even bother wasting your time? I found this conversation about the new Soviet man really productive and fascinating. And it got me wondering that this trope of the new man is infinitely recyclable in Russian history, in Russian and Soviet history, because surprisingly, that was the language I encountered in my own field uh, research in the far east of Russia. People who um, get those government land plots and relocate to the countryside, they're also, they're not just about uh, growing potatoes and carrots, you know. The project is ideologically much more grandiose. What they're claiming they're doing, they are building, raising a new man, a new Russian man. And um, when I started to dig deeper and try to understand, well, okay, what, what qualities does this new man has? It turned out that part of it is the idea of a Soviet man. Uh, so they're, they're drawing a lot on the past Soviet experience. One of the, one of the characteristics would be that this new man uh, would be a producer rather than a consumer. The consumer is, is a type of personality that was imported from the West in the 90s and kind of corrupted us. So we need to go back to the land, to work the land, and kind of build a producer. And then the other part of it is a lot of these people are conservatives, right? So they're drawing a lot on neo-paganism, on various spiritual kind of belief systems so it's kind of this like twisted mix between socialist ideas and like new age and you know drawing on like slavic uh, slavic heritage and uh, pre-christian culture i do not have like a solid theory about it but it seems like in the ideological and political vacuum that existed maybe for the past like two decades people kind of looked for inspiration for answers looked for kind of um, appropriate or inspirational models elsewhere in the places that you wouldn't think they would, in, like, surprising places. And so it morphed into this, like, strange creature. <laughs> well, at least, at least to me, it seems like there's such a wild mix in there. Yeah, I think this is a, this is a, so I, I was immensely, when I was in graduate school and started reading about some of the scholarship of the new Soviet person, um, immensely fascinated with it. Um, and still am to a large extent, but on the other hand, because it, because it seems so pe peculiar. Um, but when I think about it and, and when I started like looking into this and to my own kind of research, historical research, you know, nations, states, whatever need their, their ethical projects. And the new Soviet person is an ethical project. As is, you know, what you were just describing, Rusana, is an ethical project. It's, it's about 
how do we, who are we? How do we behave? Like, what are the practices we're going to engage in that, um, you know, uh, give us a sense of identity, community, uh, a connection to the past, present, and future? Um, and it's interesting in your case that that there's this revival looking at the this, this kind of um, volkish, for the lack of a better term, past to to form an uh, a sense of being and a sense of ethics in the present um and it's it's an interesting project in terms of like soviet history because there's lots of debate of the renewal of this and i was really surprised in courtney's rendition of it is that i thought this project was dead in the 70s and the fact that gorbachev's reforms have this underlying ethical drive is really fascinating to me that yet again, they're trying to revive this notion of a new type of person. Yeah. And um, Alexei, for example, wrote at length about the efforts to, to, to the efforts to search for the true word of Lenin because Lenin's teaching was also corrupted and, misused and so that it it felt to me like that these two connect these two conversations connected that there was this search from for some kind of um uncorrupted origin at the at the start of the project it's very religious um it reminds me of of you know religious doctrine where you're looking at the text to search for the inner truth of how one should be. Um, and Lenin plays this weird function in this context, this constant harking back to the text. What did he mean? I mean, you get the same, you know, to, again, to not particularize it, you have a similar discourse in America over the constitution. It, to me, this is primarily an ethical exercise when you're trying to understand what would the founding fathers say about X, right? It's the same kind of this, this, this struggle to, you know, find meaning um, is, is, is an immensely fascinating one. Well, I, I, you guys were talking about whether or not you would use the word collapse and kind of the drama about the word collapse. And I think I, of all the words collapse, I agree with Courtney that collapse seems to make the most make the most sense, mostly because maybe we could retrospectively apply a different word if it wasn't for the fact that Russia hasn't really seen a revival to the same level where of power where the Soviet Union was at its peak. So it's kind of hard not to see it as just like a crashing and a burning and the burning just continues. Do you think like a word like depression or recession would like kind of what what's a alternative like uh, schematic? So I don't like the word collapse, though I, I fully accept its marketability uh, because a collapse to me suggests passivity. It just happened there are no agents. Uh, there's that. Um, second, there is inevitability about it. Whereas, you know, it just kind of, you know, just hap, just, it, 
I don't know. I don't know how to put it into words, but to me, it sends, it seems like collapse is kind of, it's this thing that just kind of happens because of no particular agents that you want to ascribe to that moment. And, and it doesn't account for, and I think this is what I really, one of the things I really appreciate about what Courtney's doing is it doesn't account for the experience of people. It doesn't account for the fact that this system was in my term dismantled <laughs> by a handful of people in power with power. Whereas the rest of the population, though not passive, certainly participated in politics in a variety of ways, but they did not have the decision-making power to pull the plug. They were along for the ride for the most part. Yeah, so I think I agree with Courtney that perhaps the word collapse is sexier than dissolution or many others on the list. On the other hand, um, I also agree with her uh, comment uh, from the beginning of the interview when she talks about the idea of rupture and how this idea of rupture is perhaps misleading because the idea of rupture puts focus on this event, on this one moment where everything was cut off, which in fact is not true. And I feel like a lot of the work being done since the collapse <laughs> was to kind of refute the idea that there was the before and after because there's so much continuity because uh, we shouldn't think about history in a linear way where, you know, something was like preparing for this moment, for this event, and then something else happened. Or, you know, there shouldn't be an idea of teleology. And it seems like that, that, that the term collapse and rupture and a lot of those, they kind of presuppose that there is this linearity there to the development of history. And... Yeah, I would push back against it. And I mean Courtney herself talk about talks about it, right? There was not a single kind of precursor or some kind of uh, constellation of events that led to this particular moment. It, it's all chaos and yeah, like everything keeps collapsing. So <laughs> And that's what I like about a lot of this new work that's being done like as you said Rusana on, you know, making coming to terms with you know, now 30 years later, is that since we don't have the, that political ideological utopianism of the 1990s hanging over our head, though it keeps coming back in weird ways, <laughs> but uh, we can evaluate it and kind of think of it in new terms. And really, is there a rupture? Is there a threshold? Is there a, an event? Is there an end of history? Is there alternatives? And I think it's clear from a lot of work that's being done is that there are potential alternatives, um, you know, that of course never came to fruition, but I don't think we should forget about them. Well, well, thank you very much for, for your thoughts. Um, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and of course I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. And as you all know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. So please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter and all the other social media outlets that one may use. Um, and again, I'm going to make a, and if you'd like to let us know what you think of our uh, discussions or interviews, please drop us a line on Facebook or send an email. 
um, at srbpodcast.org um, or send us a message on Twitter. And I have, I have to say, you know, I've been asking for listeners to send in like a recorded kind of testimony of sorts. I actually got one yesterday. Uh, it's it will, it's in this episode. Uh, so please, you know, if you want to record a testimonial, we're, we'd love to have them. Um, so it, it's very easy to do on your smartphone. Uh, just record yourself speaking into it and then email it to info at srbpodcast.org and we'll uh, probably use it. Um, so please take a moment to do that if you if it, you so are inspired. And as always, um, this is a nonprofit endeavor. We like to keep this podcast open and free for all. So um, we need your support to do so. So please take a moment and become a patron of the SRB podcast by going to patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that link to Patreon. All right. Until next time. Bye.